Welcome to the 24 Stories podcast that aims to educate, inspire and help build brands. I'm your host, Stephen Ryan, founder of 24 Stories, and I'll be joined each week by guests from a variety of industries, here to tell you how they built their brands. And also a big thanks to this week's show sponsor, iTrolley.ie, who have come on board to sponsor this episode. iTrolley is an online marketplace that offers thousands of products and a broad range of services. And they're down at Lyland, and you can find out more about them on iTrolley.ie. Welcome to episode 6 of the 24 Stories podcast. Um, This week, pardon the pun, we're getting a a real insight into a few things. We have Colette Quinn from Real Insights in the studio. I know Colette a long time now. I dissociate her with all great things that are industry knowledge, research, in-depth analysis of businesses. But I suppose what I wanted to do is to bring you Colette in to have a chat about how did somebody from Kerry end up in the world of research. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Delighted to be here. I suppose it started from college. I would have gone to UL where I studied business studies and I had German as part of that. And during the course of that, you have to decide whether you're going to finance or, you know, what way you want to focus on. And I focused on marketing for that. And as part of that, I had consumer behaviour, which I thought was fascinating. Uh, I'm a Gemini, so I'm obviously very curious about what makes people tick and that suited me down to the ground. So when you were in college, would you have kind of been in the canteen kind of looking at other people and trying to guess what they're into, uh, that type of stuff? Or would you be in a supermarket and kind of looking at other people's behaviours? Yeah, suffice to say, uh, my husband won't come shopping with me anymore because if it's grocery shopping in particular, I take forever because I'm looking within cash create a new product. I'm taking things up with my hand and looking at them. So, yeah, so that's how I started. So as part of that course, you had to do work experience. So you had to work within industry for six months or yeah. for nine months. And you did that twice during the course of your four years. Yeah. And because I German then, I ended up in Munich, okay. right, for six to nine months. So I would have initially worked for Digital, who were a microchip company there, working with um, their Dach area, which would have been, you know, Germany, Austria and Switzerland. And then I worked with Siemens in the export department, um, exporting electrical goods to Asia at the time. So I would have done a couple of months there. So that's how I started in Germany. Then later, when I did a second co-op, I worked in Hamburg for an outdoor advertising agency. And while I was there, there was a big expat community there. And one of the guys who was within that um, was heading up Research International, which was at the time the biggest research agency globally. And I was talking about, you know, finishing college and what was I going to do? And she said, well, what about research? You know, what about come and work with us for a couple of months? And I suppose at the time I had uh, done my final degree exams in Austria in Innsbruck. uh, So I had missed out on all the milk rounds back at UL with all the companies coming in looking for people to work. And I said, you know what, now I'm in Innsbruck, get the train through Germany, catch up with a couple of friends in Munich. And then I ended up in Hamburg working for Research International. That was uh, 1994. What would a day-to-day look like? It was helping. I suppose Research International, their head office was in London. I was dealing a lot with the World Service Division within that, which was managing big-scale, multi-country research studies for the likes of, say, Coca-Cola, all the big corporates and brands. So as part of that out of London, they would have maybe Germany as a country that they were going to do the research in. And I was their day-to-day contact then in the Hamburg office because I had English. So I'd help them translate the questionnaire into German, do the dispatches, we'd call it. So a lot of it would have been, say, product testing. So I would have worked with the in-house guys to say, look, we're sending out cereal to these type of people to to test it, to research it. I used to deal on the Nestle account uh, for for breakfast cereals. 
and used to have this lovely client from Switzerland used to come up and we'd go into central location hotels that have a room so we'd pre-recruit families to come in that had children of a certain age and then we'd bring them in and they test the cereal so the cereal like cocoa pops or rice krispies yeah oh it was uh, Nesquik at the time you know the real chocolatey yeah yeah, at the time and uh, so they had new variants and varieties which typically meant that there was more chocolate to yes. make it even more chocolatey for the demographic that they were targeting. So that did eat and that was probably in a time where people didn't talk about obesity or anything like oh, that. Uh, like was... you know and, and the product was unbranded so yes. it literally was white box with A marked in it B, yeah. C we'd rotate it then to make sure that you weren't testing you know the order because that can impact on, on the results so we'd rotate it and then we'd watch then behind uh, a mirror you know so I'd have the client the Bob um, yeah. from uh, Nesquik they're watching it and the reaction and how were the kids reacting to it and then we'd the ask surveillance them, kind of yeah, thing yeah so, yeah. so like but, it, but, but, but it's really important when you when you're working with the brand or for a brand you get tunnel vision you know and yes. you think about this is how people perceive my brand or yeah. what they think or this is what they yeah. like or don't like and uh, uh, so you, it's really great to have your clients sit next to you because mm. you're they're seeing it firsthand so it's not like the report coming in going oh they didn't like a because of this they can see the actual reaction and because it's chocolate yeah. cereal we ha- used to have buckets in the corner because often they might throw up oh um, because it was too chocolatey yeah, yeah. or um, so I did a lot of that kind of project and are you look at, so the parents were still in the room with the kids as uh, well uh, uh, yeah. and are you looking at the reaction of the parents as well as the kids so if the parents were kind of slightly disgusted about what the kids were eating would that change the strategy it might but you see you have the questionnaire and you're asking the child what they yeah. think about it and because it's a taste test you know mm. what it tastes like uh, how did you find it Did it? and we used to use smiley faces so yeah. you know which yeah. one do you, li- do you like it course, or not like yeah. it and then separate to that then as well we'd also research the parents and yes. ask them you know about their behaviour so it used to be like a usage and attitude test which yeah. you're asking them about the usage so are you buying this you're obviously buying into this category yeah. what would you typically buy mm. do you buy this what do you like about it not like about it what else would you be considered? So what's mm. in their consider? we call it in marketing, but you know, the consideration set. Yeah. So what type of cereal would you normally buy yeah. and then get them to rate it? Uh, so that was my kind of day-to-day role there. Um, and then my contact, would you believe this story now, talking about Cork, the lady who I used to deal with in London yeah. was a lady by the name of Imelda O'Donnell. She's from yeah. Formoy. Okay. And we used to have great chats uh, because they were always going like, what's this Kerry person doing working yeah. in Hamburg yeah. so we used to have a great relationship because she, you know there was no faffing around it was like we'd have the nice stories and I suppose I really loved that because in Germany it can be quite formal mm. you know for instance I was called Frau Quinn you know I wasn't Fräulein yeah. Quinn I was Frau Quinn so I was Mrs Quinn and I was in my <laughs> mid-20s yeah. and you know all before your time uh, yeah and you forget yeah. the banter and the humour yes. and that, that we have and and then as it would have it she had worked there for quite, uh, quite a number of years and she got a new job opportunity and she left and then London rang me and they said look you've been managing the kind of Nestle account over there would you ever consider coming to London to work for us so I did and that's how I started working in London then All the stuff that you did with languages kind of went out the window then if you were back yeah. in London Yeah well it kind it kind of did and it didn't because okay. what I ended up doing because it was World Service and it, it was dealing with international um, markets I ended up in a kind of new part of it which was looking at the emerging markets mm. of Central Eastern Europe because it was the mid-90s, remember now. So yeah. the wall was coming down. People were able to choose what they wanted right. to buy. So consumerism was starting to come into the markets, which heretofore hadn't been the case. And they were um, about to join the EU and things yeah, like that as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so I ended up in 
a kind of subset of that mm. uh, looking at those emerging markets, which fascinating stuff. So every other week I'd be in Hungary or I'd be in Poland or like we were doing a lot of work for Gillette. Yeah. So they wanted to understand why their products weren't flying in that market. Yeah. Um, so we used to go on like road trips for a couple of weeks and we'd be in Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, all those different things, trying to understand what people were using to shave, what men were using to shave. Yeah. When what, I look back like, now, it was amazing, you know, amazing like, opportunity. What did you discover? Was it just a case of price? Was it a pricing issue in those countries? Because there's always the perception that they would be, I suppose, less well off than, than the Western world. Mm-hmm. So a Western product coming in, mm-hmm. straight away the perception would be, that's expensive, I'm not buying mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. We used to do surveys. So yeah. for those listeners, this was back in the day now where we didn't have Google, you know, we didn't yeah. have www. Um, yeah. So yeah. I'm of the vintage. Uh, yes. I know it's hard to believe, Stephen, but, uh, you know, we didn't have that. So yeah. the only way for you to research your market was to talk yeah. to people. Mm-hmm. So you did that either face to face by means of a questionnaire and a clipboard, yeah. you know, the old fashioned, yeah. or you did it on the telephone in there some markets. There was no survey monkey back then. There was no survey monkey. So you had to go and ask people stuff. So we would do the surveys. you know. Yeah. So Stephen, we're going to ask you now about what you're using for shaving and what yeah. product you're using. And we'd have exhaustive um, product lists of what yeah. we deemed were or what they were telling us these were the key ones that they're competing against. But in reality, what we also did was we went into their bathrooms. So we called them in their apartments and their homes. Yeah. And uh, we did what was called a bathroom audit. So we'd say, OK, Stephen, you know, um, thanks for filling out that survey. Do you mind now if we go into your bathroom and have a look at those particular products or what you're actually using? And you could see the faces kind of glazing over going, oh, OK. And we'd go in and lo and behold, they wouldn't be using a lot of the time. So that's the thing with research, you know, and there's arguments around, you know, claimed research, what people claim that they use and then Mm. what the reality actually is. So we were able to go in then and say, well, actually, this is what they're using. And in some instances, like going into these just think about it in mid nineties. So you, mm. you these huge apartment blocks, yeah. very very stern, grey, cold, and went in. And I always remember the time I went in and, and did one particular bathroom audit. And I used to always have an interpreter with me, and it was literally just a twig the guy had, like a wooden stick. And he'd taken a regular blade and he'd split it in two. Oh my god! And he was using one of those on top of it, and yeah. that's what he was using to yeah. shave. And I suppose the time as well, we have to think back to that those those markets where. You weren't able to get things on a shelf. No. So the black market was rife. So we had yeah. the black market and we had loads of grey markets yes. and what all that was in between. So a lot of what I did over in those markets as well was go to where I could buy stuff to see what was there. What yeah. type of product do they have? What what choice do they have? And a lot of those buildings had like shipping containers at the base of them that were used as makeshift shops. Mm. So I'd go in there and get as much as I could because then I used to have this bag that we used to have to get permission to go through if we were flying, you know, go yeah, through the, yeah. the, the x-ray machines because it used to be full of all different kind of single blade, twin blade, all sorts of shaving product. And you'd see the guys in security looking at this young one yeah. going, God, she must have a fierce unwanted hair problem here going on. And you actually know? you were allowed to bring blades on, on yes, planes you up were. until mid-90s, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But up we used to have a letter. We, we had a letter to say we were allowed to do it because we were doing this. We were researchers researching yeah. the market and doing this. But... When I think back to some of the things that really? we did, but that's how we needed to get the insight. And well, were those people paid then? I pres- like for you to go into their house and actually yes. go into their bathroom and stuff. Yeah, we paid them, we paid them, and we paid them in US dollars at the time, yeah. which was very valuable. So that's you- the danger: is that because they're paying, they think they have to give you the right answer. Yeah, in the survey, and then yeah. you go to them. Right? Can I have a look at your cabinet now? Yes. 
And then, you know, things like when we did focus groups for Unilever around ponds, cream, where we mm. invited women in. Again, you have to incentivize, they have to be paid for their time. Yeah. Uh, but relative to what we would have been paying, say, in London, in the UK for, for things, it was not that much, yeah. you know. Um, and like I remember my interpreter at the time was a cardiologist oh. in one of the markets because he was being paid more by us to interpret, interpret than he was in the hospitals. That whole area was so fascinating. And like we did work with Tesco, who had bought huge amounts of greenfield sites in Hungary in particular, had bought the sites and then we're going, OK, well, what do we put in the sh- in, on the shelf now? What do we put in the stores? Because yeah. you have really... to understand the culture and that's the mm-hmm. big thing in mm-hmm. those countries, mm-hmm. I'd imagine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can't just do the exact same thing you're doing in the mm-hmm. UK. Mm-hmm. You'd be surprised the amount of businesses that I deal with day to day now in my day job that don't get that. Yeah. I sometimes sound like a broken record. Yeah. Uh, but you have to understand what's driving people. Going back to my consumer behaviour lecture 101 yeah. in UL. Yeah. What makes people tick? Why are they choosing that product over that product? What's important to them? Particularly when you're talking about, I know later when I worked in Musgrave, when you're talking about categories or why people are picking that off shelf and not the, the one that's next to it. Yeah. What's motivating them? You know, the decision tree, what's important to them when they're buying into that product and really pulling that apart and saying, well, we know what's important to people. Mm. And then building out your product offering mm. and then your brand and marketing strategy around that. Because otherwise you're wasting time, money and effort. Yeah. And that's what Insight is all about, you know. So what? So what if I know that? What What are we going to do now? What yeah, The difference? why is very important in anything. Like yeah. why do people do things? All I want to know is the three things that we as a business now are going to do differently or we're going to yeah. change, to grow, to tweak, to yeah. best serve our customer needs. And that's what, crucially, in a business environment, in a commercial environment, is using that insight to do something. And if you're not doing research with that in mind, don't bother doing it. Yes. And I have clients who look at me as if I have 10 heads when I say that. Yeah. But you have to think about it. You know, if you're doing a survey and you're asking a question, think about what you're going to do with that information when it comes back. Is yeah. it going to make a difference? Yeah. Is it going to inform what it is you're doing? Is it going to make you understand why you're making the decisions you're making or the or the course of action you're going to take or because as you know from your work with yeah. your clients and uh, the brands and the entrepreneurs etc it's all about the insight and understanding where you're going to go and mm-hmm. is it worth it is there enough there for me to give and, up the day job or remortgage the house <laughs> as you said to me before you know what is there is there a need for for I suppose for whatever you're offering in 12 months and is it still going to be there in 5 years or 10 years or mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. it's very hard mm-hmm. to look beyond that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you mentioned Musgraves there so you, you were a research agency did you stay in research after you went to London I, I think you came back to Ireland did you? I came back and I worked for Lansdowne Market Research yeah. um, they they were bought out but it's funny now that a lot of the people that I would have worked with yeah. there went on and built other research agencies okay. so uh you know, like Red Sea, that was yes. uh, Richard, Richard and Sinead. Sinead used to sit opposite me yeah. uh, in in Lansdowne and Brian Cooney used to head up their data data side, uh, it, uh, runs um, Direction Research Group, who's still to this day doing all my data crunching for me. So I would have worked there and at the time they would have been seen as the market leader within yeah. research mm-hmm. here, working for all the all the big companies, the banks, the drinks, the, mm-hmm. the whole works. Uh, and I worked for them. And at the time then a job came up in Vodafone to head up the research function in Vodafone, which was hilarious at the time because I didn't even have a mobile phone. 
So I went for the job and the guy said to me, what makes you think that you're fit for purpose here? And mm. and I said, well, I'm the ideal person to do this because I don't even have a phone. Yeah. You know, so if you really want to get in underneath in terms of acquisition and looking yeah. at, I'm that person here. Like what's the reason that you don't have one? So can you find the same reason with so many other people like you? Yeah. So I just did and I got the job. So mm. I ended up working um, as a market research manager and I had to work not only on the consumer side of things, but also the business side of things. Yeah. And a very different market for Vodafone then than it is mm. now. I mean, that was emerging. Mm. So it was like going back mm. what mm. you were doing in, in the likes of Hungary and the Ukraine, but in an mm. Irish context mm. with a new product. Mm. And it was really, it was, it, was, it was challenging, but I suppose we had the luxury of having customer data. Yeah. So we'd billing information. Okay. okay? And we did a huge segmentation piece that other Vodafones around Europe and then globally modelled off, you know. But also on the flip of that, when we were looking at new offerings, particularly on the business side of things, will it work? And I often give this example when I'm mentoring startups and things, talking about who is it that you're getting feedback from? Because in a business environment, the person who might be using your product day to day could be different to the person who's paying for them to use it. So the decision maker, the gatekeeper, the purse strings person. The customer and the consumer. Yeah. So the business person might say, oh, I'd love all this fancy stuff. I'd love Mm -hmm. to be able to download my stocks and shares and Mm -hmm. and be able to look at this. But Mary Mary or John back at the ranch in finance is not going to pay an extra 10 or 15 quid a month for you to do that when it's another thousand by a thousand. So it was fascinating to be able to look at the consumer and the business side of a business and understand how to research them and how best to research them. And I would have often at the time have to go into teams that spent a lot of time developing things and say, stop, like this, this isn't going to fly. It's not what's right. There's so much stuff that you might think will fly and in reality it might fly, mightn't fly or things that you thought were a sure thing that won't be a sure thing. And it's all a learning. But it's all about the insight, you know. So when you're doing market research for a company like Vodafone, is as much of the time spent on, let's say, the pricing, how you pitch it, like in terms of the package deals or whatever, whether that's, you know, for the business environment or for the ready to goes or whatever it was at the time, versus, let's say, how we actually sell it to the public in terms of TV campaigns, billboard campaigns. Like, how, Where did you spend your time? I think one feeds into the other. Okay, so, start at one. Mm, so my role was the insights and market person. So I was the person that the internal teams came to to say, we've got this new product offering idea. Tell us whether it's going to fly or not. Um, And then depending on what the outcome of that was. So it was my role then to bring them along the journey, craft Mm. it and design the research plan, go out and get the agency, external agency to do it, bring it back in and say, well, what does this mean now for us? Did it resonate, not resonate? what worked, what didn't work, then it might be an iterative process where, where a new, say if it was an ad, a new, a new ad might be generated and then tested again. Um, so I was the kind of go-between yeah. where I was helping the internal teams understand what was happening in the market and the consumer behaviour that was going on. And that then informed their planning and their strategy and their brand plans and, you know, the vision um, and then where they went to. So in terms of how do they get the message out there at the time? So... At the time, it was opening up, like the online was starting to come to the fore. So they would use research to input into those and feed into, okay, have you done voice the consumer? Have you looked? Have you validated this? And are they the right consumers to validate it against? Because what I find day to day now in in my role, a lot of people go and think, Asher, we'll just 
ask any hundred people what they think. <laughs> Random people. Yeah. You know, and yeah. okay, but who did you ask? If they're yeah. not the people you're targeting, then yeah. it's nonsense and it, it makes no difference to you. Um, you know, if clients come to me with a saying, oh, we did a survey monkey, we've 800, 900 responses. When you actually look at it, there's only about 100 that are actually relevant, relevant to you. So I was kind of that person that mm. helped them understand what's happening in the market, the market dynamics, and then helped them craft a research plan and then use that then to input into into, the, into their strategy. But it all started with the insights piece, really, um, and understanding the customer and like even growth, where different types of customers. You know, we made kind of bold decision when we were looking at our segmentation that there was a whole host of people. You know, we looked at the lifetime value of a customer. So how much is that customer worth to us over their lifetime? And we segmented it and we were narrow focused in terms of these were the ones that are going to bring the most yeah. to us. So this group, which are clogging up the customer service all the time and giving us very little, they're, they're not really of interest to us let the competitors have those guys and shape it um, and that's strategy then you know because all customers are not equal so you have to identify the different pots and understand here's where I'm going to target or focus on for growth or maybe it's you're in acquisition mode and you're trying to understand what, what type of customers do you want to get in here uh, or maybe there's customers that are out there that you haven't really identified mm. as being important to you and your brand You're there at the start but I presume you're there at the end of the campaign as well so you the team come to you and look, we have a new package deal. We're, we're going to launch this this red business package or whatever. We're going to get out there and, you know, afford a phone. We're, we're going to go big on this. At the end of six months or 12 months, do you say, well, we need to figure out if this is working and yeah, we need to talk to people? Yeah, we do. Um, pre or post evaluation. Mm. Um, and that's something that I built out for them at the time was what we called an advertising and brand tracker. Okay. tracking study so we do a big piece a continuous piece of work yeah. where um, mobile users were researched on a weekly basis mm-hmm. to understand you know were they aware of us what do they think of us in terms of brand brand perception versus the competitors um, and then we'd look at recognition so do they recognise our brands what's the key associations they have with it and then can they recall ads and can they correctly attribute us to those ads so to see if it's working. Yeah. So, so Because there's always this thing of, you know, the famous quote, 50% of my marketing is working, 50% of mm-hmm, it isn't working. Mm-hmm. I just don't know which is which. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. slightly, it's kind of false as well. If you're not, if that's, that's going to be the case if you're not doing research. But if you're doing research, you should know which is working. In an ideal world. But not right? all of them do. But not everybody does. And I suppose I see this in what I do because research is often, you know, people glaze over when you start talking about market research because it's mm. not sexy like creating ads, yes. you know, and all that sexy stuff. Yeah. Um, but I find a lot of people kind of move towards that nice, cool, sexy brand development and ad development without doing the bit up front around, well, who are we creating these for? Or what, what's the, you know, you'd have a brief, a communications brief. Remember yes. them? Yeah. If you were creating yeah. something, this yeah. is why we're doing this. Yeah. This is what it's going to do. Yeah. And then you track to see, has it actually done those things? Where are we? Where do we want to go? Yeah. So mm. has it increased awareness? You know, like are they are they are they more open to us as a brand? How do they feel about us as a brand? You know, and then now you've got all this stuff where you can test ads and people's eye recognition and Artificial you know like and you can and do all else. the heat things so mm. they focus more on this bit of it and pull it apart and you know you've all that kind of stuff, great stuff. Um, but at the time we'd look and go, well, if you've invested all this money in it, mm. is it actually doing what we? wanted it to be doing or is it impacting the way we wanted it to be impacting and then you track it you know so if you're spending all this money like million, you know Millions, a lot of yeah. investment mm. what's resonating or not or is it actually been you know when we look at retail for instance you know the Musgrave thing 
do they actually know that that's one of our ads versus one of the competitor ads? Yes. Or are they all merging now because they're all kind of talking about the same thing and nobody's taken ownership of key things that maybe our brand would have been known for mm-hmm. or famous for. So it's really important to track and to measure the metrics, you know, like so if you have a brand scorecard or you have, um, you know, a KPI, you know, your key performance indicators as a business, what are they? Yeah. So what are the things that we need to do? And I'm working with a big client at the moment and putting together, you know, scorecards and metrics and all that kind of stuff. And the key thing, the key challenge with inter- all the multiple internal stakeholders is understanding what is it that we should be measuring to look at how our brands are performing in the marketplace. Yeah. Not just our brands are performing, but also versus the competition. Mm. What are the key metrics? Yeah. Then everybody signs up to those and says, we know by measuring these mm. that we are measuring how good our brand is out there and how it's performing and where we could be losing to competitors on. What are the key things we're losing on? What are the things we're winning in? Mm. I presume it's not all about sales in terms of when, we, when we're doing those research because a lot of businesses, especially SMEs, all, all they look at is, OK, what's the bottom line? What do I bring in? But they're not thinking about the long term brand, the, the benefits of building a brand. Yeah. And you see a lot of that is lost on businesses. Yes. You know, I might have a client come to me and say, we've an issue with this or we, we need to do research. And mm. then I'd say, well, why, why do you need to do research? Mm. What is it yeah. that you're hoping to get out of it? Yeah. And often they think they need to do research on one one thing, whereas when I get in underneath and I start asking the questions, I'm going, that's not what you really need to be doing at all. You've missed this bit. You know, they, they mightn't be able to tell me yeah. things about, like, you know, who are the competitors and yeah. uh, we don't, nobody competes with us. You know, that's the, that's a, what I've been coming up with a lot in the last couple of years. This is completely unique. And then when we do a bit of digging, we find competitors that are actually doing really great jobs in that space in other parts of the world. And, you know, so often you might think you need to research A when in reality it might be B. And then for me, it's all about, as you said, like for the business, what business am I in? Yes. Who am I selling to? Yeah. How many of those people are out there? Mark, yeah, share of wallet. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, you know, you're Tam Sam, you know, you're, you're, we do a lot of market sizing. And I know, you know, Des Trainer from Intercom was talking about Summit and, and um, he always talks about, you know, if you're building a product, yeah. uh, are you solving a problem? Yes. Right. So is this thing being built to solve a problem? Is that problem going to increase over time? So are there going to be, is this problem going to be there all the time? Mm. Are there going to be people with this problem in a year's time, in two years, in five years? You know, so if you're not looking at things that way, you're going into a market that's declining. And that's the way we need to be looking at things. You know, this is solving a problem for X number of people. There's going to be even more of these people with the same problem moving forward. Um, and then sizing it in terms of the market that you're interested in going at. And I think here in Ireland, people focus a lot on Ireland and the UK. Yes. And now with Brexit, obviously that's upscuttle things now. Yeah. So people are looking to wider markets. So we're doing a lot of work within Europe or in other, in, in other markets to understand where could the opportunity be. And I think businesses here don't think enough about the global opportunity that could be there. Yeah. And we'd always talk global. So if it's SaaS, you know, SaaS yeah, product yeah. and that's what you need to be doing. How big is this market? Uh, who's in this market? Are there different types of customers within it? OK, if there's five different pots of customers, given our resources and the budgets that we have yeah. at the moment, which ones are we going to go after now? Which ones are in the kind of medium and the long term then? When did you go on your own? Because so you're talking about helping all these different businesses and being a mentor and, you know, dealing with a lot of startups in particular. Mm, mm. Was it straight from Vodafone? 
No, I was headhunted from Vodafone to come work for Musgrave here in Cork. Okay, um, so that's why you're... Yeah, in, so that's why I'm in Cork. In Cork. And I suppose at the time, the research market is all Dublin-centric. Yes. So there was only... All the big agencies are there. There was only two jobs outside of Dublin Whoa. for researchers, you know, market research heads. Yeah. One of them was Musgrave yeah. and one of them was Heineken. And then they moved their marketing roles up to Dublin. So, um, so yeah, so I came down to the Real Republic. Um, you're 20 years going at this stage. Yeah. And worked in Musgrave, heading up the Insights team, working in a unit that they'd specially put together called the Commercial Business Unit, yeah. which was trying to bring process around various functions within the business. And I worked there in there with a team of there was 10 others. And I ended up in that unit. For Super Value and Centra? For Super Value yeah. and Centra. Yeah. yeah. And at the time they'd World of Wonder, which was a toy brand as well. Was that theirs? I didn't yes, realise. Yeah. Um, and it was my job then to start putting processes in place around researching the market yeah. and knowing more about the consumer. It was mm-hmm. a consumer insights role. Then I built out things like, you know, the advertising and brand trackers for them. I suppose I had I had the internal stakeholders, but I also had to help stores yes. understand their markets and their customers. So I would have had super value retailers or, or mm. managers on the phone to me going, right, how do we research the catchment? We've yeah. got a new store. There's a new Dons or a Tesco opening. And I suppose retain. at the time there would have been a lot of new Aldis and Lidl's popping up into kind of rural Ireland where super value would have had a kind of yeah. a strong hold. At the time, the, ret- the discounters were coming in. They literally just landed a couple of months after I started the job. Yeah. And they were this unknown entity and people were going, oh, you know, who are these guys? And, yeah, I know. And I found it fascinating because having lived in Germany, it was mm. where I went shopping. Yes. When I studied in, yeah. when I studied in Austria, we'd, we'd an Aldi across the road and that's, yeah. that fed us and watered yeah. us for when we were there. So I knew them. I knew what they were like. I knew what the proposition was like. That's where everybody in, in where I lived in Hamburg went shopping. Yeah. It was nothing strange. Whereas this thing about discounting and what does that mean now? So did you have to do research on the competitors then to see what the public perception of discounters coming in was? Of course we did. We yeah. did. We did all that. Yeah. Uh, to understand, you know, what they were offering, who mm. was shopping there, you know, and you'd have all that anyway from, um, you know, Kantar data, which yes. would do your basket. Yeah. So you that's how they get there. When you see in the media, you know, uh, market share for, for grocery or retail stores. Yeah, yeah. That's calculated by Cantor. So you'd be able to see how many people are buying there, what, the average basket size, how much they're buying. You can look at it down to category level. So we would ha- have had to do all that. Um, and then bringing in data from the CSO and Cantor and all of that to build out reports for retailers who were thinking about maybe expanding or opening a new store. Mm. And we do all this analysis around the catchment yeah. to say these are the type of chimney pots, these are the type of demographics, the type, so as an older demographic, it is a well-to-do area. Yeah. Uh, are there schools? What planning is going on in the areas yeah. that are likely to grow? So did all that as well and then helped the likes of the trading departments then with category work. So yeah let's grow the category by X. And then I'd also have to sit in on things when suppliers were coming in to pitch for yeah. shelf space. Yeah. And I'd be the Grim Reaper, as they used to call me, coming in going, OK, well, tell me how you know your market and whether you think this is going to yeah. sell. Will it turn? So it's fine to say a product is great, but a retailer wants to know that it's going to rotate off the shelf and yes. sell. Yes. Um, and then if we're moving one thing into a new category and a category plan, what else is what moves the other way or goes down the bottom shelf up to prime position and You spoke well ago about the value of the lifetime customer I'd imagine in that sector it's very competitive you, like how do you know they're going to stick with you 
like if you do research is there is there certain indicators that come back to say in that area they're a well off you know audience or whatever they, they're very brand loyal do you do stuff around that? We used to um, but I suppose I have to think back to when I first started there yeah. and people would be loyal and do remember the the days when you used to do a big trolley shop? That's right I still do that yeah, but but not as much as it used to be done. Yeah, probably. You know, yeah, so yeah. you do. You know, if you think of your your you know your mom or my mom, yeah. like it was the weekly big, the weekly thing, big, on, oh, probably a Thursday or Friday or something like Thursday that. Thursday yeah. or Friday, yeah. um, and you get the big shop, and then you might go the to the messages. corner shop. You might go to the corner shop with the bag of messages. Yeah. Thinking of Dara Terry baby now with his <laughs> yeah. tote bag with the thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, so things have changed, yeah. and people dip in and out. So you know, if I were to ask you, who are you loyal to? Yeah. You probably have a repertoire store, you know, yes. a number of stores that you'd use and you dip in for and certain out of them. Reason, for certain things, you have your big shop and your small yeah. shops, yeah. Or yeah. you dip in and out of, and you mm. might, you know, I know you like your craft beers and you had the yeah. Franciscan Wellen earlier, before. Um, yeah. So you might do your, what would have been your off-licence yes. shop. You might go to a speciality store now yes. or you might buy things online or... I think it's that dynamic mm. that you understand. So if they're saying that they do the line, the proper portion of their shopping, would they do with us? Mm. Where else would they go to dip in yeah. out of? So where can we win back? Like share wallet is really important. Nice so we've, it. you'd look at it percentage. So we've 60% of their share wallet, 40% yeah. goes elsewhere or we've 80, but they spend 20. Well, where are they spending the 20 then? Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, if they're going there for that, can we do something there? Or you know, oh, well, actually, we're okay here. And like I know from recent research, if you win on fresh, you're likely to get a higher share of your share of wallet from somebody. So if they win and buy their fresh produce, then they pick up other stuff. Yes, and that's where the win is. And I suppose you can see others now getting into stores changed dramatically. You know, the theatre within stores. You have the butchery. You know, like James Whelan now in Dunn's. You have O'Connell's yeah. Fishmongers. Yes. And if you think of Dunn's Fish Times Court. That flagship store is very flagship. based around that kind flagship. of like bringing the English market nearly to yes. a supermarket. Yes. Yeah. So you have more choice, don't you, as a consumer yeah. now to where you're going to buy your stuff yeah. or... You see somebody then like Aldi and then they pop up stores in the same area, two or three stores. But is that like a Starbucks model? I'm not really sure what they're trying to achieve. Well, look at Douglas now. Yes. You know. Aldi and Grange and then you've the Aldi in and the two, middle of... And, and the second one going up in Black Rock, all in the space yeah. of it. I know from the 2K radius, yes, they're, all yeah, in, yeah. they're all in the 2K. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, like, but at the end of the day... It's the share of wallet. Yeah, and it? like back in the day... I didn't have the luxury like I had in, you know, Aerosol Vodafone of billing data yes. when I joined mm. there because there wasn't a lo- super value didn't have a loyalty card. Yes. Duns were the only ones their value, yeah. the, the value, the value card. Te- Tesco, Tesco the first ones. Tesco yeah. were the first one. So they'd done Hunby. So we would, when I was in, in, um, in London, we used to do work with Tesco mm. and sure that done Hunby analysis unit started out small yeah. and sure then people but there's value in data. Yeah. Like, look, we, we are where we are now. Yeah. Um, and they saw that. Yeah. And they started building out all of those analytics and those, uh, those the modelling and, you know, we can sell some of this data now to others yeah. and work with suppliers yeah. and give them profiles of the type of people that are buying their category within our store and uh, getting huge, you know, with different revenue streams from that data. So then... Real rewards came in after I had left, yeah. uh, but I suppose I went out on my own in um, 2004. I can't believe it's 17 years. Uh, I'm still working with Musgrave. I was talking to somebody last week, and they said, "God, it still feels as if you're you're, you're work you're working here, and I've gone 17 so years." When you when you left, did you kind of take on a consultant role with them? Like how how did that work? 
I left, I got itchy feet again and I wanted to go travelling. So I went to South America for a couple of months and the hardest days I still remember driving from Cargilline on the Shannon Park roundabout and going out in my lovely Volvo car and with my mobile phone and my laptop and mm. I'd hand all of it over and then went travelling and I just bought Including a house. Including the car. Oh, it was oh, it was my pride and joy. Yeah. I always remember the ten the ten lads in CBU when they saw the car being delivered into the car park. They said, yeah. God, you should see the lovely car. It's me to, of course. Um, that is a hard moment. It yeah, is a and moment. I left all that and I went travelling to South America with himself, who's a, a boyfriend at the time now, husband. Yeah, and came back and I got a call from the trading director in Musgrave, and he said, "I need your help with something. Can you come in and help us in Musgrave?" I was the person trying to get research done for retailers, you yeah. know, to have the focus groups done mm. to whatever. And I really struggled with getting people to go and do that work because all the research agencies were based in Dublin. They didn't want to go to the likes of Tubba Curry to do focus groups or, yeah, yeah, you know, because yeah. when you look at the footprint, as you said earlier, like it's rural and they didn't want to be doing that type of work. Mm. And I struggled then to find people that would do it and do it to a good standard, mm. with right rigour, recruiting in the right way, um, and really delivering good, insightful um, reports. And I thought, Stephanie Gap here, like, I suppose I've been very fortunate that a lot of the the clients that I had at the beginning, I still work with and they still come to me for stuff. Yes. Um, and I've since built out, you know, there's three other consultants working with me now and we do a whole host of different things. And as do you they said, work for you or are they kind of subcontractors? How does that work? They're then? subcontractors. Yeah. 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 Um, so I bring them in. They have different skill sets. So yes. depending on the project, yeah. I'll bring them in. You know, I have guys that are good on business modelling. Then I have others that are good on the quant side of things yeah. for survey design. I have a very good online guy who comes in. Um, so depending on what the brief is. Yeah. I will use them and then we'll work together and deliver something in. And then I also do things like, um, you know, mentoring the innovation hubs. And uh, so I you do a lot with Enterprise Ireland. Yeah, don't you? with Enterprise Ireland and, you know, the New Frontiers, UCC mm. Ignite, I'd mentor on that as well. Mm. So we do a lot of market feasibility, market validation, market sizing, understanding where growth could come from in different markets, looking at prioritising markets. So they might look at four and then we'll say, look, this is the one which holds most potential at the moment or whatever. And then they approached, approached me and, and, and a colleague, Roisin, who heads up her own Market Intel agency, KnowledgeWorks, to build out a market intelligence platform for Enterprise Ireland, oh, for their clients. Yeah. So we did that over a two or three year period. And now we work with clients who, we do a knowledge transfer really, where we help them understand these are the steps involved in researching your market. Yeah. And we guide them and mentor them on it. So at the end, they've got a document then to say, this is our strategy around yeah. this particular market and building the foundations around market intelligence and understanding the environment that they're going into, the dynamics that are at play within it, the competitor set, all that good stuff. So it's a kind of skills transfer. And then we work with EI clients who are looking to do full research projects and we deliver that end to end as well. So we would have done stuff for financial services, looking at different markets or whatever. So it's quite varied. You never know what's going to happen. I'd say it's fascinating. (laughs) You probably have loads of different types of startups from all different types of industries. I'd say some scary stuff coming in front of you as well in terms Mm. of people telling you probably never done research. Yeah, it's scary. I know we've talked about this before. Um, When I say, and and I say this when I'm mentoring and I'm doing startup you know, from doing workshops or webinars, yeah. I will say, please ask whatever questions you want. Yeah. However stupid you think the question it's is, not really it's not question. really stupid yeah. because you've probably remortgaged a house or you're using your savings or, yeah. you know, it's your baby. Yeah. And I, I'm, I've been that soldier. I've the person who walked away from the corporate job and, the nice car uh, you and know, everything. the whole yeah. lot. Yeah. And 
you know, like guy. I remember talking. There was a guy like remortgaged his house, gone through all the savings. Um, you know, and he's dependents. You know, like yes. you know, Kids if you're a young entrepreneur, whatever, yeah. you don't have. It's a bit easier, isn't it? It's a bit it? easier because yeah. you don't. They don't have the knowledge or maybe the experience, but yeah. they have less. To, yeah, less the risk. Yeah, really. and and like, or people that you talk to might have had some funding, right? Yeah. They've had the funding and then they go, I said, oh, right, OK. Um, so, you know, say feasibility grant, they might yeah. be given 15K like from the LEO, like we do work with the LEO or whatever. And then I'll say, oh, right, OK. Um, and then say, oh, but we actually only have really five grant. And I'm going, but where's the 10? Where's, where's, yeah. where's the other 10 gone? Um, oh, well, we did the branding and with the website and, you know, and right. all the sexy stuff that I was talking about earlier, not the kind of... Doing it the opposite way around. Yeah, and I remember seeing this beautiful deck and, um, something like from Silicon Valley or something. Oh, it was beyond it. Yeah, yeah. The slickest thing I'd seen in a long yeah. time. And uh, and they had paid somebody to produce it. Yeah. And then I looked at the product and they had all the features and da, da, da. And I said, right, OK, so are you manufacturing or you've, you know, MVP or where? Oh, no, we just have a drawing. N- nothing made. So they had all the collateral. <laughs> Oh God! Yeah, it looked. I said, "Oh my God, yes. this thing works." This Someone's be... going to buy this straight away. It, oh, yeah, it, it yeah. was beyond yeah. um, a different dimension, and they hadn't. And didn't no look into test. the feasibility of how you could build no, it. No, nothing, 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 nothing. And would you done. come across a lot, lot of that? Yeah, a good bit of that now. Where people come up with an idea, thinking it's going to be very straightforward to do. Yeah, yeah, and or things like you know sourcing material or not factoring things into their business plan. You know, like. Yeah having something landed, okay, but then you've, to say it's an ingredient or part of, you know, okay, so, but that's coming in now from the UK, you know, yeah. Brexit stuff. So what impact does that have now on your cost per unit? And then fluctuations in that or whatever, or building something out and the dependency you have if somebody goes out of business that you can't actually make what it is, you know, physical yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, or just not looked at the op side of stuff. Uh, you know, on SaaS side, it's one thing, but physical product and the manufacturing. And if you don't have manufacturing background, uh, yeah. how are you building this thing out? And yeah. is it coming in made or where are the components coming from? How do you price that then? Or yeah. people, business, you know, we'd look at business plans or scenario planning and uh, sales. Where are the sales going to come from? Yeah. Oh, I've got this. Da, da, da. Okay, do you have that in writing somewhere? No, but they've they've told us it. it's 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 a done deal, you know. And just units, you know, just estimating projections. Yes. And like some of the stuff you see, business plans, it's kind of fairy tale stuff. A lot of it. And have you I'd, seen people like completely fail as a result, lose a lot? Yeah, yeah. You know, or guys that with the best will in the world, you know. Passionate, you know, yes. we all have met them, the passionate yeah, and yeah. entrepreneurs. And like I'd always say best of luck to people. And but please do the due diligence and satisfy yeah. yourself that there is something in this. Yeah. Like I always say to entrepreneurs, you know, the, you need to understand, does this thing have legs and how big the legs are? Yeah. And show me that you've done that. Yeah. And often they'll say, oh, everybody loves this. Mm. And when you ask them who the everybody is, the friends, the family, course, and, they haven't, yeah. and they haven't gone and sought an external view of it. And somebody will actually give them a right steer. And often they're afraid maybe that they mightn't want, they, the feedback they get back isn't what they want to hear. But I'll always say to them, you're better off finding out that stuff early on yeah. and doing something about it yeah. than going further down the track where it's harder then to let go of it and you've lost a lot of stuff. Or you you might have people with you along the journey, co-founders that have left or whatever it is. Yeah. D- 
do it. And if you have a product, it's not that hard yeah. to go and if it's a product within a particular category, you can go to a supermarket or somewhere and see what else is there. Yeah. You know, you can, yeah. there's ways around it. It's not rocket science, but I think people shy away from an external view on something. Mm. And then you've the good guys who've built multiple businesses who see the value in it. Yeah. I find it interesting, but you know, that's, it's my it career. and done, Yeah. Uh, like I'm passionate about it. I love figuring things out and understanding whether this something has legs or like yeah. how big the legs are. But it's not everybody's cup of tea. Yeah. So if it isn't, go and find somebody who'll help you put a thing. And the thing about it is, if you're a startup, there's so many great support networks out there yeah. and things, you know, like you look at your UCC Ignite, you look at your, you know, your New Frontiers programme. There's Such, people you know, everywhere. The MDRC and stuff like that that they're doing here. Yeah, yeah. the dog patch labs, you yeah. know. There's so many people that you can use as soundboards. Don't be afraid to ask. Don't be afraid to ask, but please do. If it's not all goody goodies that mm. you're getting back, then decide, OK, let's turn this around. Yeah. OK, we're, we're barking up the wrong tree or we're going after the wrong group of people or whatever it is. And I remember, like, you know, Human and Kind, another great court yeah, success, or yeah. your own and your the guys. Own, yeah. We would have did the first feasibility work for them. You can see the case study on our website. But, you know, they had literally the white product in a tube saying, this is a new product, natural skincare product. Yeah. We want you to tell us whether we can sell this yeah. globally. Yeah. We only want to sell it online. We only want to sell it to women in this particular age group. Now tell yeah. us whether we can do that or not. And they were gun-ho on selling to a specific age group and they were gun-ho on doing it only online. And when we actually got in underneath it, it was a much older demographic yeah. that were buying more natural skincare product online, not only for themselves, but for others and gifting yeah, it. Yeah. Um, and because it was a new product and um, it was a tea tree oil, so you needed to smell it, you know, and whatever. It's a new brand. It needed a physical presence as well. But they were willing to go and test their assumptions and say, are we on the right track here or not? Because people are building out businesses based on the wrong assumptions yeah. or outdated assumptions. Yeah. And it's fine to go with your gut, but I'm all of all of the view. Make sure you're stacking the chips to your favour, you know, yeah. that you're building out those foundations, knowing there is something and I can show you there is. Mm. Might know all the right, all the answers, but we're doing things to understand where we're going and where we could potentially sell this and how we're going to sell it and the markets we're going to sell it in and who we're going to sell it to um, and who else we could potentially sell it to moving down. So it's just insight, you know, tell me, tell me that you know your stuff. Yeah. And for me, it's hard, hard work and graft. Mm -hmm. And the guys that put in the hard work and graft are the ones that are most likely to succeed because they're willing to challenge themselves. They're yeah. willing to see the bits that aren't working and, and iterating and mm. moving to where the, the market is going to and be willing to do that and be agile. It's that, it's keeping on top of what is going on. What do I need to know? how could I potentially be blindsided? And I mm. see a lot of businesses being blindsided because the business owners are in the trenches yeah. and they're not taking their head above the parapet yeah. to really look at the wider market and what's going on. And something that could come down the track, say like regulation that might impact on what it is they're doing or, you know, somebody opens up at the end of the road or some a new competitor comes in and they think, oh, sure, they won't be a patch on us. You work with a lot of different organisations then on, on, on a board level, like I suppose charities. Do you yes. see similar stuff happening there whereby they're so busy in their day-to-day -day routine that they don't see the bigger picture? Uh, well, I'm on the board of Shine, um, yeah. which is a charity uh, that supports children and teens with autism and their families. And then I'm also on the board of Corporate Makers, uh, which is very different. Um, very different. Two yeah. very, very yeah. different. And I love working with both. And I suppose the challenge, particularly with Shine, is they're just, 
there's just so much demand and they're under yeah. so much pressure in terms of trying to support families. And help so many different families. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. you know now the waiting lists and for everything, it's just, yeah. just awful. They really are the forgotten children yeah. and I get really animated when I, when I talk about it. Um, so they don't have, they're, they're not business people. They're no. there who are who are there to try and ensure that kids reach their potential they're and support them. They are, yeah, yeah. they are. And Shine is run by Kieran McAuliffe, an amazing, amazing guy. You know, and he does a fantastic job. All the staff do a fantastic job. Yeah. But, you know, when you talk about them getting their message out there and promoting themselves and, you know, telling people that we're here to support mm. them. Yeah, you know, they've done a really great amount of work there. And, um, but... They don't see themselves as a business. They're not. No. They're not a business. They're they're a charity. You know. They just they're, want to stay stay. Uh, I suppose ahead, yeah, uh, yeah, trying yeah. to keep 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 but afloat. To, but to enable them to do that, and I suppose they're a charity that the lion's share of what they fundraise goes back into services, mm. and they can stand behind that. And I'm proud to be able to say that fundraising has been decimated with COVID. Yeah. So they would, all, you know, they'd have so. their annual ball. They'd have their ladies' yeah. lunch, uh, which is phenomenal. Mm. And it's been absolutely gone. Just like everybody yeah. else in that in yeah. that thing. So, but I suppose they're lucky enough now to have the Rotary Giving Tree. And then I suppose with the printmakers then, it's a members organisation. So artists go in and use it. They go in and they pay a nominal fee to be able to use the But it's a non-profit, is it? It's a non-profit. Okay. And then they, um, they host exhibitions yeah. and then they've got a relationship with Lavitz Key there as well where some of the artists exhibit. Uh, so very different dynamics. So we've all different disciplines going in on the board to try and help them look at where opportunities could be and, yeah. you know, like corporates for, and they sold a lot of the prints for, you know, the new Dean Hotel yes. in town. Yeah. So looking at new opportunities, because I always yeah. remember when I was in, in Vodafone in Musgrave, um, one of the research agencies used to send a gift back in the day when you were able to receive gifts yeah. and used to be a print from one of the print studios in Dublin. Yes. Beautifully yeah. presented and every year they'd commission a particular artist to do a series of them and mm. then they give, the, give them to their clients. So it's looking at, okay, well, where could other revenues come from mm. and how do we grow the membership, obviously, yeah. and things. So I've just been fortunate that I, no matter, I suppose, what I do, in, whether it's business life or personal life, it's about trying to make some bit of difference. Yeah. That's positive and that can help people and bring them along the journey a bit further or, you know, because, you know, like my, my son has autism. So, yeah. So that was personal that what you went very into personal, very, to help very, shine. They did something for you, so you wanted to give back. Yeah, I, we were just, we spent two years trying to figure out what was going on. And it was a friend, um, a friend of, of my husband's who had twin boys who had autism, mm. who suggested we speak to shine. Yeah. Because at the time we knew nobody who had a child with autism yeah. or what what it really was. Yeah. I would just say they just saved our lives as a family and because um, we were so desperate at the time to try and get support and help from. Yeah. And there was nowhere, no preschool. You know, we were saying because Neil worked for Apple at the time, yeah. will we just up sticks and go to America because he could get a job over there to get him support because I was going to be damned now if they're going to write him off Yeah, because he was being written off and yeah. there's so many children who are written off and everybody talks about the things they won't do or they can't do Yeah, and I just got so fed up of it I was going well actually I want to hear about the stuff that he that they can do he yeah. can do and yeah. who can nurture that and bring yeah. make sure that he has a great life Yes, because he deserves it Yeah. Um, so anyway long story short um, we ended up securing a place in Shine yeah. We were on a waiting list and uh, we got him in for just afternoon sessions, like three hours and just transformed his life. They are just amazing. 
And now the child who didn't speak till he was nearly four and was completely and utterly written off by so many different people is now top of his class in mainstream school in third class. And he's doing stop stop motion movies. Um, He's better vocabulary than I do. Amazing. And that's all down to the early intervention. It's all about early intervention. Every hour of support that you can get for your child before they're four or five is equivalent to seven hours after that age. And we were just so... You could never pay a shine back for something I, I, I like can that. never pay them yeah, back. Yeah. So Eamon and Paul, who had set up Shine years ago when they had children that yes. weren't getting any support yeah. and they said, we're going to build this out. Yeah. Um, and they did. And I came on the board then. And I've been on the board for years. And it's just amazing. I just love the fact and hear the kids and go in and they've extended out stuff and we've got really good fun. You know, we've had some corporates who've helped with different initiatives that we've done. Yeah. Um, and we had Klug, you know, an app that yes. can be a social, uh, for social... Um, the Lads and Doodle created, yeah. Yes, they yeah. did, the Guys and Doodle. Yeah. Um, and that's been downloaded 150,000 times globally. Oh. And they also built out uh, a site um, uh, for parents, for parent support. Yeah. You know, if the parent isn't functioning, then it's very difficult to be there for the child. Yeah. So Kieran recognised that and they built out a whole load of different programmes and Alma there and Laura and the team built out content. They also lecture in UCC and autism, st- autism studies as well. Yeah. And they built out that for, as a place for parents to go to to get support. Oh. So it's accessible online for everybody. Just amazing. But fantastic. Just so if, if anybody's and out there that can the support passion, them. Even yeah. when you're in front of me now and I know we don't have video for this, but you can see yeah. how much you feel yeah. for them. Like, yeah, you know. they just changed our lives and my, my son's life and they every single day they do it. So it's fantastic. I think it's a, a nice positive way to kind of wrap up the, the podcast. But before we let you go, I have two questions for you and you've probably heard the same two questions every week. So the first one is, what tip would you give another business right now? And you've probably given loads of tips in this episode already, but what if one tip for a business starting off maybe even? I suppose two things, like be true to yourself mm. and go with the gut, you know, your gut, you've, yeah. you've a gut feeling. Yeah. And then I'd also, a key thing for me is watch who you're listening to. Who is it that is in your ear? Yeah. Who is it that you're engaging with? Use the networks that are there. Yeah. Everybody will help you with the heart and a half, particularly in Cork. We're yeah. fantastic. Yeah. There's loads of people that have done something similar or might yeah. have done something exactly the same. So ask. If you don't ask, you're not going to get, are you? And what tip would you give an individual? We might have a lot of students and stuff listening to this as well. You've had a lot of different kind mm. of career changes mm. and you took a lot mm. of risks mm. in the early mm. days as mm. well. What, what tip would you give them? Yeah, as my father said, I didn't, my late father said, you don't make life easy for yourself. Jeez, you're never happy. You had that job, then you went off, then you came back in. You went yeah. out, like you're never. So I would say if you're, you know, that 20 something, yes. go and explore yeah. and see outside of here and see what others are doing. It's yeah. so easy to do it now. So go and get experience and test, test, test within an inch of your life. Yeah. and get feedback and continue to get feedback. It's Throughout an iterative process. Yeah, continue. It's a continuing mm. process. It's not about researching now and forgetting about it. No, yeah. You have to constantly have it's the weird. radar up looking at what's going on because you could get blindsided or taken out or be on the pulse um, for those real insights, Stephen. Nice way to finish with the real <laughs> insights on brand as always. Listen, it's been an absolutely fantastic conversation. I think we could have talked here for another few I know, hours. I could have actually. Because there's a few other stuff there that I haven't even gone into in in, in detail. So thanks a million for, for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. Best of luck with the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the 24 Stories podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and get in touch with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn at 24 Stories Tribe. I'll be back next week with a brand new guest.